This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Uh, welcome back to Basketball History 101. We are a proud member of the Sports History Network. And today I have a special guest with me, my good friend Dana Auguster from the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. As you know from listening to Basketball History 101 that I am a diehard Lakers fan. I bleed purple and gold. I've mentioned that every now and then on my episodes. But I wanted to bring Dana on because I wanted to talk about Bob Cousy. And Dana is a diehard Celtics fan. Yes. And yet, despite the fact that I'm, I'm with the Lakers and he's with the Celtics, we still can agree on what we love about basketball. We so, agree to Dana, disagree. Thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> man, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> thank you so much for letting me on, man. I really appreciate that. You know, being a, being a diehard Celtic fan like I have. I've been a Celtic fan since I was like 10, 11 years old, following Larry Bird and Dennis Johnson and those guys. You know, I've been a diehard Celtic fan, and Bob Cousy is actually one of my heroes. You know, I never mm-hmm. saw him play but I've heard stories and watched film and I just love his style. And I think that, you know, doing some research, I found some interesting things about Mr. Cousy that is pretty interesting to say the least, especially in his early part of his career. Yeah. Now this for, for my audience, this is a follow-up to a two-part episode that we did a couple of weeks ago, but would it be Dana, would it be a stretch to say that Bob Cousy kind of, created the blueprint for the modern point guard? He basically was the blueprint for the modern point guard. I mean, he didn't create, he was it. Um, when you talk, first of all, you have to understand Bob Cousy, where he's from. He's from New York City. And New York City mm-hmm. is pretty, is the hotbed of point guards. I mean, you think of everybody from, uh, Rod Strickland and Kenny Smith and, you know, those guys, um, you know, Kenny Anderson, those guys came from the streets of New York City playing basketball and especially mm-hmm. point guard. And it all goes back to the, to, to Cousy because Cousy's from, Grew up in New York City, grew up in Queens, playing in the playgrounds of New York City, and that's where a lot of his ball, dazzling ball handling came from. His playing, you know, playing, and there's a very interesting story about Kuzi and how he developed his playing style. And the best way to describe it is this. When he was 13 years old, right, he fell out of a tree. He was climbing a tree with some friends or whatever, and he fell. Now, he was already playing basketball for his junior high team. He falls out of a tree and breaks his hand. He's right-handed, so he breaks his right hand. So he's pretty much out for the year. But he continues to practice, but he practices with his left hand. So he became so good with his left hand that he became pretty much ambidextrous, which is an essential part of of the point guard position, you have to be able to use both hands, shooting, passing, dribbling, that sort of thing. And so he was kind of like a pioneer of that, as he was considerate, by accident. He didn't intend on it happening, mm-hmm. but that's how it happened to be. Yeah, now that's that's an incredible part of his story. And But the other part, I think, is that was so interesting about Kuzi as he was coming up in, in New York, as you said, was that he always seemed to be underestimated. Now, it the part that gets me is like, have you seen this kid play? He's good. But one of the things I found out is that when he went to high school, he didn't even make the team as a freshman. And maybe that had to do with the broken hand, but he doesn't really play a lot until his senior year, which to me seems kind of crazy that you wouldn't play this kid until he's a senior. But um 
I, I, it seems like his the way he dribbled, his flashy style might have had something to do with it. I don't know. It had everything to do with it. I, I, in my research, I realized that the coaches knew that he was good enough to be a high-quality basketball player. But the problem was that he did not fit the style of play that they wanted. You got to remember, this is the mid to late 1940s when he's in high school and and eventually goes to college at Holy Cross. And basketball in the 1940s is nothing like what you see today. It's very, everything was in the half court. It, It was a very static game. Very low scoring, of course, no shot clock, but still low scoring nonetheless. It was all half court. Then you get this kid from New York City with the flashy ball handling, the behind the back passes, the fancy dribbling. And the coaches really didn't think that he was capable of getting to play in the style that he was in the style that they wanted, essentially. So the problem was, was that it wasn't the fact that he wasn't good enough because everybody could see that he was good enough. The problem was, was that they were, didn't know if he had the discipline to play in the style that they were accustomed to coaching. And that was the big knock on him. They thought he was a hot dog. They thought he was a ball. He thought he was a ball hog, a, 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 too much of a showboat, which is the word that was used back in those days. So that was the problem that Kuzi had to deal with was the fact that he, you know, that he was just, he played a different type of ball that they wasn't used to. He played more of a street ball, you know, that, that mm-hmm. was played in the parks in, in, in New York City and in Queens and wherever in, in Metro New York. And they wanted a more of a traditional style. And that really didn't jive with what they were trying to do with the, in the, in the school basketball that he was trying to be a part of. Yeah. Kuzi was just ahead of his time in many ways. Cause in the forties, when he was playing in the forties, I mean, that's when guys were still taking set shot, two handed set shots. I mean, this is the era that we're talking about that, that he was trying to, I mean, not that he was purposely trying to. I take it to the next level, but he was just doing something that really wouldn't be commonplace for at least another decade or decade and a half. Whenever I think about this and when I was doing my research on this and I was thinking that, okay, and I was reading that a lot of coaches really didn't think that he was good enough or because I was thinking, okay, this kid, I've seen film of him play and I'm like this guy could really dribble he could shoot he could pass he could do all of those things but why nobody wanted it I thought about it it's like was he tall enough and I looked at him he's six one so six foot one point guard in the 40s and 50s that's not the case because that's a pretty good size for a point guard in those days so that's that can't be it so doing some more digging and some more research, I found out that it wasn't the height or it wasn't the lack of talent because obviously he had the talent and he had the size. It was the style that, 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 that concerned coaches. They wasn't sure that they were, that they could pretty much keep him in this sort of box that the point guard was supposed to be in was basically a floor general and pass the ball. From from the basically two hand chest pass, you know, or just a simple bounce pass or whatever, he could do all of those things, but he could just do it with a little bit more flair. But they didn't want to have anybody that kind of would show up, you know, that would show up his teammates or whatever with the, his immense talent. 
that sort of thing. So I think that was the main reason why he didn't play until his senior year. And when he came out, when he played his senior year, he lit, he lit everything on fire. <laughs> yeah, I think he was like the New York City player of the year or something like that, or like a all-city type player. And he does play well enough that he gets the attention of the College of the Holy Cross in the Boston area. And yes. he goes there to play. And again, he's almost in the same situation again, where he barely plays until he's a senior again. And, and I think it's just kind of like a, it's a repeat of the same story from high school. Right. Now going back to his high school, he scored 20, he dropped 28 points in his very first game in high school as a senior. First game, first start, 28 points. He was named captain of the Journal American Scholastic Basketball Team of New York City. Okay, so not only was he a great basketball player, he was also good in the classroom, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. He goes to Holy Cross, which is located in Worcester, Massachusetts, okay, and the same thing happens. The coach there, Doggy Julian, devised a system where he basically had two starting teams, and Kuzi was on the second starting team as a, as a, as a freshman, I believe it was. But he hated coming off the bench so much. And he really did, he really despised coming off the bench because he knew he was better than the players that was ahead of him or whatever. He actually, Kuzi, went to the school's chapel and prayed that the coach would give him more playing time. Okay. And he basically bided his time, bided his time. Finally, senior year comes around. Now, by the way, Holy Cross was not when he was a freshman, was not a, a garbage team or a scrub team or anything else. It went 24-3 and three that year and ended up winning the national championship by beating Oklahoma. So this, so the whole two-platoon system that Coach Julian was pulling off at Holy Cross was, for lack of a better term, impressive. Impressive enough to win a national title. But and they became the first New England team to win it all. And this was in 1947. He didn't play a lot of the sophomore, and he was about to transfer after his sophomore year. He got so fed up with being at, you know, being coming off the bench at Holy Cross that he actually wrote St. John's. And the coach, legendary coach Joe Lapchick of St. John's, say, I want to transfer. I want to transfer to your school. What do I need to do? He said, son, I would love to have you. But it's a risky move because back then, if you transferred, you have to sit out a year. So and I don't think that's a good idea for you. And besides, Coach Julian is a great coach, and I know he's not doing this purposely. I know he's not. I've been knowing him for a long time. He's not doing this purposely. So finally, he gets a chance. And of all places, he finally gets a start in Boston, of all places. And he got – and – the crowd already knew him. The crowd, the game is in Boston Garden, and they start chanting, we want Koozie, we want Koozie, because they already know who he is. He, you know, I mean, he'd been doing all of these things coming off the bench, and they love him. And what happens? He goes off. Okay? But his style of play was the thing that really kept the coaches from really believing in him. It was his style of play, but everybody could see he got talent and it was a, it was a type of talent that he had that a lot of people were just so enamored with. They just loved his style and that style, you saw his, you see his style 
in Pete Maravich. And then later guys like Isaiah Thomas. And then later on with one of my all-time favorite players, Jason Williams. You saw that all that. You saw all you saw whenever you see those guys with the fancy passes and behind the back, no look, all of that begins with Kuzi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh yeah, he was an incredible player. I think he was an all-American his senior year at the Holy Cross. And uh I mean he really put himself in a position to be a top NBA pick. And uh and that's what he was looking forward to. Um but then something else kind of quirky happens when the 1950 draft rolls around and uh and he's he's not as attractive as he thought he was. So what I'm gonna do, let's so go ahead and we'll take a break and we'll be right back with the rest of the story in uh when Bob Cousy got drafted in 1950. We'll be right back after this. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of you Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items. Plus, get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, the career of his college career. And now 1950 is rolling around. It's time for the NBA draft. And Bob Cousy was fully expecting that he would be taken in the terror with a territorial pick by the Boston Celtics because they were just down the road from Holy Cross. But that's not exactly what happened. Uh, they have brand new coach. The Celtics bring in a new coach in Red Auerbach. And he's got some different ideas for how he wants to build this Celtics team. So I don't know if you saw uh, who he, who they did go with, but uh, but if you've got that. Uh, well, you the Boston and, and, fans. Dana. Boston fans wanted Kuzi, and Kuzi wanted to play in Boston. I mean, mm -hmm. in that game yes. that, I, that I alluded to earlier, he hits the game-winning shot 
against uh, his a buzzer beater against the Warriors of Chicago when they were chanting "We want Kuzi." He hits the game winning shot. He scores eleven points, but hits the game winner buzzer beater against Loyola of Chicago. So he's automatically a folk hero in Boston, and he wants to stay in Boston because you know he's went to college there. He's familiar with the area, all of that. Unfortunately. Red Arbach has different ideas. So they draft a guy by the name of Charlie Cher. And Kuzi is like, I thought they were going to draft me. But in, when he ends up going to the Tri-City Blackhawks, which is basically a territorial team that was located in Illinois. You know, it was, I think it was, uh, Tri-City was Moline and Davenport, Iowa, Moline, Illinois, and another city. But they all combined to host this one NBA team. And that's just the way the NBA was back then. So, Kuzi was like, okay, I need to get out of this because I don't want to play there and I don't want to move to the Midwest. So, what he ends up doing is that he starts his own business. As, you know, teaching people how to like a driver education course, you know, teaching people how to drive cars and stuff in Boston. And so the owner of the Blackhawks, Ben Kerner, says, uh, we drafted you. He said, yeah, I know you drafted me, but can you, in order for me, I have to stop my business in order to play for you. And so Kerner was like, well, how much you want to, how much are you looking for to sign? He said, I need $10,000. I think Kerner probably fell out of his chair when he said that because ten thousand dollars in nineteen early nineteen fifties when he was drafted by Tri Cities was a lot of money. So I sign you for six. He say no. Um. So he didn't sign. So he did not sign. So he ends up going to this other team, the Chicago Stags, still in the Midwest. But the Chicago Stags had a major problem. They were about to fold. Okay, this is a team that was about to go out of business. So what ends up happening is to kind of fast forward a little bit, the stags go out of business. And so they get so do so teams get to pick in something called a dispersal draft, which is basically the team that's going out of business, they put their players on basically like a draft, and teams get to pick from those players. There were three players that were on this dispersal draft. Kuzi, Max Zeflosky, and another guy by the name of, let me see, uh, Andy Phillip. Okay. The owner of the Celtics, Walter Brown, was like, we want Zeflosky, period. They're three guards, basically. So basically, they say, we want him, but the last person we want is Kuzi. That is the absolute last person we want. So as it turned out, Puts his hand in the hat, pulls out the name, the name on a piece of paper, Koozie. Walter Brown said he nearly fell out of his chair. The last person we wanted. And he joins the Celtics. And as they say, the rest is history. He leads the Celtics to, what, seven NBA championships, eight NBA. He leads them to six NBA championships. He's league MVP in 1957. 13-time All-Star, including making an All-Star team his first year with the Celtics. Two-time NBA All-Star MVP, 10-time first-team All-NBA, and he was on the, he's one of only four people to be on the NBA anniversary team for the 25th, 35th, 50th, and 75th year anniversary teams. One of four players to be on four of those teams. So mm. it wasn't that bad 
Walter, when you picked out of that his name out of that, it ended up being not that. It wasn't that bad. Uh, yeah, it all it all worked out for this. And this is what I get frustrated with as a Lakers fan, you know, knowing you're a Celtics fan, is like that they lucked into that. They were doing the Celtics did everything they could to not get koozie. And then they get Koozie and everything that you just mentioned. One of the greatest players of all time wins six championships. I mean, by the way, the, the, the Tri-Cities Blackhawks are now in your, where, where you, where you are as the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks. Exactly right. Yes, exactly right. They went to St. Louis not too long after <laughs> they, that. They, they, they could have St. Louis Hawks and they defeated the Celtics in the finals in 57. I want us in 58. Mm-hmm. In 1958, in one of the most underrated Game 7s of all time, they went to overtime, I believe it was, that St. Louis ended up winning in St. Louis, I believe. Um, No, I take that back. That was the Celtics' first championship they won in double overtime against St. Louis. The next year, they couldn't stop Bob Pettit. But the Hawks stayed in St. Louis until the 1967-68 season, and they moved to Atlanta, and then the rest is history. They finished mediocre franchise ever since but going back to koozie i mean he was i mean to 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 borrow a phrase when you whenever i talk whenever i think about koozie and those 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 um celtic teams of the 1950s and 60s of how they were so ahead of their time. Everybody think when you think of fast breaking, everybody think of the Lakers of the of the eighties with the fast break and the Showtime and everything else. All of that began with the Celtics of the sixties, and Kuzi was the ignition switch for that team. Arabak powered the you know fueled the tank. Russell was the power of that engine, but the real driver of that team was Kuzi because the fast break was always initiated with a block or a rebound by Russell outlet to outlet to Kuzi Kuzi dribble twice pitch it off to Heinsohn or pitch it off to Sash Sanders or to Casey Jones or Sam Jones or whatever and they were on their way they were they were rolling from that point on so he was the he was the the, the focal point of that Celtic fast break outfit and the focal point is exactly what Bob Cousy was. During the late 1950s and early 1960s, the ball went through Bob Cousy to make the Celtics fast break something that the league had never seen before. I want to thank my good friend Dina Auguster from the Historically Speaking Sports podcast. If you have a chance, check out his show. Just like us, he is part of the Sports History Network. Dana takes us back into the history of North American sports as he covers American football, basketball, hockey, and just about anything with a historical significance. That's Historically Speaking Sports. And join us next time when we share the story of the creation of the Air Jordan basketball shoe. It was a huge gamble on the part of Nike at the time. Of course, that gamble worked out quite well. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon.